From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. We have flipped the calendar to August. And for our congressional members, that means Congress has adjourned for August recess. It's a time to talk to and listen to constituents. Before they head back to D.C. in September, when the race is on, before the September fiscal year deadline, and things ramp up as we head toward the 2024 election. There's a lot on the table that impacts Oregonians. In this episode of Straight Talk, Oregon senior Senator Ron Wyden joins us to shed light on what he's working on, including legislation to fight wildfires burning across the West, an effort to stop the flow of deadly fentanyl that's flooding into our region along Interstates 5 and 84, how the CHIPS Act is benefiting Oregon, and we focus on rural Oregon, how to improve access to health care, broadband, and much more. Welcome to my guest, Senator Ron Wyden. Senator, welcome back to Straight Talk. Thanks it's nice to have me. you here. You've already been busy in the state. You've had a couple of town halls in Coos Bay and Curry County. What are, what are the folks talking about? Well, certainly fires are front and center. And one of the things that I'm pleased about is I was able to get an important law passed that saved about $4.5 billion that we can put directly into fire prevention. That's matters, for example, like thinning, when it goes out and gets all hot and dry on the forest floor. And if uh, you don't do anything, you have a lightning strike and you've got an inferno on your hands. And the federal government was just messing up. I mean, it essentially discriminated against uh, the prevention uh, fund. And I said, look, this is stupid. Let's make sure that the really big fires you fight from the disaster fund, but you stop raiding prevention. And uh, we got it passed and uh, it's making a big difference. I heard a lot about it on the coast. And in Coos Bay, you're working on a shipping container project, right? To, to boost trade and boost jobs. One out of four jobs in Oregon revolves around international trade, Laurel, and the trade jobs pay better than do the non-trade jobs often because they have a higher value added component. And that port is gonna be hugely important jobs for pipe fitters and steam fitters and everybody who's going to build it. But it's also gonna be really smart environmentally because it'll get diesel trucks off the road. We'll have a new focus on rail. I wanna talk a little bit more about fires because the folks in Curry County are affected by that flat fire. And as you mentioned, that fighting fires is really a top priority for you. And you testified at a Senate budget hearing about the need to better invest in our wildfire firefighting force. Let's listen to what you said. The reality is these fires are not your grandfather's fires. They are bigger, they're hotter, they're more powerful. We get them often almost year round. And you know, when you go out to these communities as I have, I have town halls in every county in my state, Talent and Phoenix, you know, for, for example, uh, they just got devastated by you know, recent uh, uh, fires. And, I and Senator, you've said at some of your town halls, you've heard from firefighters who say how tough their job is, how tough it is on their families, how tough it is to make ends meet. Now, you were able to press the Biden administration to raise firefighter pay, but what more do you want the Forest Service to do? Well, first of do? all, that raise that I led the fight for expires at the end of the fiscal year, which is essentially the end of September. So I want to get that renewed. And I can tell you, having driven around all these small communities in Eastern Oregon and Southern Oregon and Central Oregon, you can often see help wanted signs and they are paying higher than the salaries firefighters 
uh, can make. And so I want to get the uh, bump up in pay that was temporary made uh, permanent. And then I'd like to find a way to really professionalize uh, uh, the firefighter uh, systems and go year round and have some bonuses for retention, for staying and being willing to be part of a professional uh, firefighting force year round. Well, the firefighters have been so busy and a lot of people in Oregon have experienced the smoke, but it's not just in the West now. People in the Midwest and the Northeast have experienced smoke from the Canada wildfire. So a lot of people are wondering with climate change and wildfires getting worse, is this the new normal? We have global climate scientists who say the month of July was the hottest month on the planet. What are a couple of things you're doing to address climate change? Well, for, first of all, I wrote the law that has been now officially designated as the biggest investment in fighting climate change in American history. We were able to get almost $400 billion in clean energy tax credits. And I mentioned transportation, a major source of, uh, of pollution. And this is going to make a huge, huge difference. It's not everything that goes into the debate about change. But when you have a tax code, for example, that favors fossil fuels, you better do something to at least be technologically neutral. That's what my new law stipulates, that we'll have technological neutrality. And the more you reduce carbon, the bigger your tax savings. We anticipated about $400 billion worth of private investment. It looks like it's going to be much more than that because the private market is reacting very well to my law that favors innovation. Well, everybody at home has heard about the fentanyl crisis, and some of them have seen it firsthand with overdoses on the street. Fentanyl is flooding into our region along the I-5 Interstate 84 corridor, and we just had a bust recently in Multnomah County. It's the biggest bust Multnomah County has ever made with tens of thousands of pills, a lot of powder, fentanyl powder, worth about $320,000 on the street. You, you can see it here. You were able to get anti-fentanyl legislation into the defense budget, the annual defense budget bill. What will that do and how bad do you think this, this crisis well, it, is? It's a start to mobilizing the resources that we need to fight the fentanyl. I mean, fentanyl is a public health and law enforcement scourge. I mean, it's just devastating. And I've also made it a priority to mobilize Customs and Border Patrol because what we're seeing is that a lot of the fentanyl comes through I-5, comes through I-84, and we've got to have more resources. And I met with the sheriff in Coos Bay. He wants to have his area designated a high-intensity drug trafficking area. I'm going to help him. That'll get him more resources as well. Let's talk about the CHIPS Act, because we're marking one year since Congress passed the CHIPS Act uh, last August. It's something that you really pressed hard for. You and Congresswoman Bonamici held an event at OMSI. We're taping this on Wednesday. It was Wednesday morning. You held this event to talk about what the CHIPS Act has meant to Oregon and what it can mean for the future. First, let's start with you know how important are CHIPS? What are CHIPS and how important are well, they? Well, from the time you get up in the morning till the time you go to bed, <laughs> you depend on those, those, those CHIPS. I mean, we always talk about oil in the past. Oil is uh, certainly going to be important, but uh, chips are really where we look at the daily appliances from the things you wake up with until the things you go to bed at night. And uh, what I'm so proud of is Oregon has just had a banner week in terms of semiconductors. Today, you read in the newspaper about Intel, Intel making huge commitment to additional uh, expansion in Hillsborough. Private companies came this morning, said they're going to use the investment tax credits that I got in the CHIP uh, bill. The governor announced uh, additional uh, resources for CHIPS projects. And what I'm proudest of is Gina Raimondo, the Commerce Secretary, who came to Oregon at my invitation when she left 
She was quoted in other appearances uh, after she left Oregon saying, you should go see how Oregon is doing it. Her words, they're unbelievable. And I think that's going to help us now in the days ahead get uh, some of the technology projects in Oregon, particularly uh, advanced lithography uh, is so important for semiconductors. And I think we're well positioned. Uh, not going to make a prediction now. I think we're certainly in the race and we want one. Well, you talked about how we use chips every day. This Microsoft Surface I use every day here at work is powered by an Intel chip. And you also tweeted recently about ADI in Beaverton is got a, like a billion dollar expansion as well. What more do you think Oregon can can expect from the chip? Well, I, I think we've got to pour it on. I mean, we also got money for University of Oregon and Oregon State and Portland State uh, uh, as well. I think we really need to work on workforce. You know, I'm chairman of the Senate Finance Committee and it used to be when folks came in to visit, they would always talk about some tax code issue. They'd say, well, Ron, section 36, paragraph B, clause three, I'm you know, obviously making it up, but that's how it sounded. Today, Laurel, they're interested in one thing, which is workforce. We had President Benning from Portland Community College today. She's an incredibly dynamic uh, leader. We're gonna have a great workforce uh, expansion too. Because with all this expansion from semiconductor industry, you need more workers in the, Oregon. The metro area is gonna be a magnet for technology uh, workers. I'm determined to do that. We had a task force with Duncan Wise, uh, uh, the leader uh, of the business uh, group. Uh, it was a two-year kind of effort, and it's really paying off. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about rural Oregon. And a lot of times we hear about the urban-rural divide in Oregon. How do you bring people together? As I mentioned, we're taping this Wednesday, but later this week you're going to be in eastern Oregon. And you're working on legislation that is called groundbreaking because you're bringing together a lot of different stakeholders, ranchers, small businesses, tribes, environmental groups, hunters. And it's for something called the Malheur Community Empowerment for the Owyhee Act. So what is that and why is it groundbreaking? The Owyhee back east is known as Oregon's version of the Grand Canyon. It is really spectacular. And for decades now, something like four decades, there's been fighting back and forth about trying to come up with a management plan. And what we announced after years worth of work, the ranchers came to uh, see me, basically asked me to get involved. We have now uh, a major piece of legislation that's backed by ranchers and conservationists and small businesses and farmers. And what it's gonna do is it's gonna ensure that the ag way of life is maintained. The farmers always wanted to know, oh, you're gonna come up with some big thing and we're all gonna be out of business. We maintain the ag way of life and that includes uh, some smarter policies with respect to grazing rights, which was very important to them. And we protected a significant portion of, uh, of treasures. And I sometimes pinch myself when I think that this, uh, this came together, but this is going to be a great uh, model for how to manage lands and particularly bring together agriculture folks and conservationists for a win-win. So you think this will pave the way for future legislation that brings the I urban think this and rural is, divide? I this is going to be looked as a model. And I want to say we also have one in the healthcare area. I'm working in Baker City uh, where we've had some questions about obstetric uh, uh, services. We were able to use some federal dollars that uh, I got in 2021 in order to help deal with the situation in the short term. It's going to be a challenge for the longer term. And so I'm working with the hospital uh, there and we're looking at things, for example, as chairman of the finance committee, I can pursue this is something like a Medicaid 
bump up and increase in reimbursement for hospitals that have low birth rates. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Baker City situation in a second, but I want to talk a little bit about rural broadband because a lot of us in the city take it for granted, broadband and internet, but that's not the case across Oregon. You see that in your travels. Oregon just got, I think, $700 million to expand access. How is that going to help? This is one of the reforms I'm especially proud of. I led the effort. It's almost $700 million. And what was happening was the maps that were put together by the government to determine allocation of resources were very flawed. And basically, they counted areas as being served when they weren't being served. And I pointed this out to Secretary Raimondo. We got it fixed. We now have the largest amount of funds Oregon has ever received for broadband. And in terms of the need, in rural Oregon, broadband would be sort of the equivalent. The need for broadband is like farms have got to have water to survive. Communities have to have broadband. We have a lot of viewers in Baker City, so I do want to go back to what you talked about, the, the health care situation there. It's at St. Alphonsus Health System, the hospital there. There's a real threat that there will not be maternity care. After 100 years in Baker City, the, the maternity center was set to shut down July 30th. You and Senator Merkley worked hard to, to get that extended. I think you got a, a four-week extension. You also held a town hall where I, I heard 300 people showed up from all walks of life. How important is this birthing center to Baker City. It is hugely important. And I walked in that day, and I'll never forget it, because it was incredibly hot in Baker City. And, you know, I thought, well, maybe we'll have 40, 50 people because coming in from the sun. But I got there, and there were way over 300 uh, people, and moms were pointing at their, at their stomachs, and they were sobbing, and they were worried about uh, whether or not they'd be able to have their, their child. And I walked out there, and I said, I am so determined to get this addressed. And we've made a lot of headway. I talked to the St. Alphonsus executives again yesterday. We got the four-week extension. Had we not gotten it, it would have already been closed as of this time of the interview. And I have been able to get those federal funds that, in effect, mean that we've got the money for nurses for six months. I do think we've got to work out a way to fund this, both short-term and long-term, that's private and, and, and public. But when we get a six-month commitment and we're working on that, that would give us a chance to plan for the longer term. And I've also talked to the Idaho senators, uh, particularly Senator Crapo and Senator Faith uh, with the Finance Committee, Senator Risch, uh, and we all work together on it, and uh, they'll help with the long term. And people in rural Oregon are also concerned about pharmacies. A lot of pharmacies have shut down. And we, we have to talk about uh, prescription drugs. I know that's really important to you. And you and you mentioned Mike Crapo, the Idaho senator, the ranking member. Um, you were working on something called pharmacy benefit manager practices. What is that? Why these, does that these matter? These are people who are middlemen, Laurel. And they made a lot of sense 30 years ago. 30 years ago, you didn't have a lot of data about healthcare. You didn't have people who knew how to use it. And so a PBM, a pharmaceutical benefit manager, might go to a business group or a labor group, a bunch of educators, and say, I'll get you a good deal on your medicine. Now, however, these middlemen really look like they're helping their executives more than the patients. And we've got a bipartisan bill um, that is now moving in the Finance Committee, and I'm proud to be able to uh, tell your viewers also uh, my price gouging penalty, which was passed in the last Congress, has kicked in. And if big pharma companies are charging 
uh, rates higher than inflation, they would have to pay a price gouging penalty. And so drugs like Humira, the blockbuster arthritis drug, you're already seeing uh, go into a position where cost sharing is going to go down. I have kind of a, a complicated question to ask you about because it's entered the national conversation about age in Congress after video showing Mitch McConnell, Senator Mitch McConnell, who's 81 years old, freezing for 20 or 30 seconds. You see it here in front of uh, TV cameras. And then within 24 hours, another clip showed 90-year-old Senator Dianne Feinstein appearing somewhat confused when she was asked to vote in a committee. So that question has come up if there should be a maximum age for certain in Congress, like some companies have mandatory retirement ages. What, what do you think? What are your thoughts? The authors of the Constitution spent a lot of time thinking about this issue. And they decided that the best approach in terms of term limits or an age was what we call an election. Now, I personally think that if there's a term limit, Western civilization is not going to end. You know, these people, oh my goodness, you know, everything will be terrible if we have term limits. I don't buy that. But what I do want your viewers to know is as this issue is debated, the big winners in a lot of these term limit approaches are the bureaucracy, because the bureaucracy stays and stays and stays. And very often, they see these newbies come in and you know they're for a couple of years and they run circles around them. So this is an issue that's important to debate and that's my thoughts. So you lose your institutional wisdom with term limits and the to some extent. The world is not gonna end. You know, it moves on and people are replaced. I just think people are gonna wanna think as this issue gets debated about the possibility of transferring more power, power that isn't accountable at all, not to an election, to the bureaucracy. And that brings me to a question about President Biden, because he'll be 82 if reelected at the beginning of his second term, 86 at the end of that term if he's reelected. Do you have any concerns about his age? I watched him at the State of the Union address this year, and you had a lot of people on the other side of the aisle hitting him really hard and shouting at him and the like. He gave as good as he got. Senator Biden, it's time for us to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about one of your favorite subjects, basketball. Oh and what are the chances that Portland could get a WNBA team? And what about the future of the Blazers? We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter, and we're talking with Oregon Senior Senator Ron Wyden. Senator, once again, welcome. Thank you. We're shifting gears now, talking a little bit about sports. And there's something that just happened with the, the PGA Tour. They just agreed to merge with their rival, Live Golf, which is backed by the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund, which is controlled by the Saudi Crown Prince. The two would merge into a yet-to-be-named for-profit company. And in response, you have introduced a couple of bills that would end both organizations tax-exempt status. Why? What are your concerns about well, this? I, I certainly think that Oregon taxpayers, all the people who are watching this uh, program, shouldn't be lubricating this deal with their, with their tax dollars. I think the Saudis are involved in sports washing. They'll do anything to try to cleanse their, their past misdeeds. We know something about that in, in Oregon. I got the Fallon Smart rule passed to finally make it clear that there are going to be some real consequences if you know, they do what they did. Uh, here at home where they had somebody, a Saudi national charge, and they whisked him out of the country before his trials. So uh, I do feel uh, very strongly about uh, uh, the 
idea that they should not get tax subsidies for sports washing. So is this merger a done deal then? I don't think it's a done deal at all. You've seen uh, you know, a lot of uh, people who were considered very pro-business and sympathetic to these kinds of things uh, express reservations. One of the major ones uh, left uh, uh, what was uh, apparently the board, and I don't think it's a done deal uh, by any means. And, and certainly, as chairman of the Finance Committee, I think this is a really bad use of taxpayer resources, of the tax dollars of Oregonians to subsidize a deal like this. I'm gonna do everything I can to stop it. And one of your favorite topics, the WNBA. The WNBA is expected to expand to other cities in the coming years, and you want Portland to be one of those cities, and you held an event with the commissioner of the WNBA, Kathy Engelbert, at the Sports Raw, a really great sports bar uh, for women in Northeast Portland. This was earlier this year. What do you think the chances are that Portland will get a WNBA team? I, I think Kathy Engelbert, and I'll let her speak for, for herself, I, I always enjoy talking with her, I think she was amazed at the incredible grassroots mobilization that we had for that, uh, that program. I mean, you had the ducks and the beavers and the, and the thorns and the blazers, everybody was, uh, was, was there. And I think that women's sports has become an economic juggernaut for this state. If you look at the amount of, of gear and memberships and, uh, and the like, and the sports bra is a perfect e example. I mean, summer months, you have a WNBA playoff game and everybody's having burgers and, and beer and other things at, uh, at the sports bra. And uh, then they walk down uh, to Moda and, uh, and see a game and they have all those um, games when the stadium otherwise would be empty. It's gonna be a real shot in the arm to the economy. What's the timeline? When do you think we could get a team? Let me put it this way. Uh, and I spend a lot of time talking to people close to how these decisions are, are, are made. I think we've made a lot of progress and I think a decision will be made sooner rather than later. Okay, we have to talk about the Blazers because you're a super fan being a basketball player yourself. We have pictures of you with Damian Lillard. <laughs> I've got to find out what did you think when you heard that Damian Lillard was asking to be traded? Well, Dame's position in the hearts of Trailblazer fans is very much intact. In I think this is very difficult for him. I think it's very difficult uh, for, for the club. Uh, obviously, he wants uh, uh, to make a change. We've got to get value because he's such an extraordinary uh, player. So I'm not going to micromanage uh, personnel uh, decisions, but uh, I consider Damian Lillard an amazing person on and off off the court, and we've been lucky to have him. What do you think about our draft pick, Scoot Henderson? I'm fortunate that he got injured in that first summer league game, but what do you think about the future of the team in Scoot? I, I, think, I, I think it's clear that he brings a lot to the game. We're gonna have to try to figure out how to deal with all these people uh, uh, in the backcourt because we gotta strengthen ourselves up front. We gotta get bigger and longer. What about the future of the team? I mean, we've heard about Phil Knight making overtures to Jody Allen, the owner, trying to buy it. I saw reports that he tried again earlier this year. He was rejected. What do you think the future outlook is for well, the team? I, I want Oregonians to know I'm not going to sit around and allow something like what happened in Seattle where they just in the middle of the night practically picked up and, and left. So I, I've been very vigilant in terms of watching the, the, the process um, for dealing with Paul Allen's estate, staying in touch with the, with the league. And I just want Oregonians to know that as long as I'm the state senior senator, we are not gonna see a fiasco like, like what happened in Seattle. And you're in touch with Phil Knight occasionally. 
I'm going to keep those conversations <laughs> private, but I, I always enjoy talking with them. Well, and also the Moda Center, the ground lease on the Moda Center ends in 2025. The, city, the city's got some big decisions. I think uh, Phil, Phil Knight's uh, decision in, uh, in Northeast Portland with Rakaia Adams, Tony Hobson, and uh, a lot of our, our leaders over there is just terrific. And the combination of a WNBA team, what they're talking about, and by the way, I'd kind of like to see baseball at the Lloyd Center. Oh, I think a lot of people would. About 20 seconds for a final thought, Senator. I just want everybody to know, I think these kinds of programs where you actually talk about issues are so important. Um, your station, a KOBI in Medford, you're making a big difference, and I'm glad you're focusing on substantive news. Well, we appreciate you, Senator. Thanks thank for you having for joining me. us. Always great to have you here, and always a pleasure to have you watching. Thank you, and thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find our podcast wherever you get podcasts. You search for KGW Straight Talk. Join us next week when my guest is Metro President Lynn Peterson, who's also announced she's running for Congress in Oregon's 5th District. We hope you'll join us then for Straight Talk. Have a great week.